and it is Jesus who makes this a glorious day. Welcome to this morning's broadcast. Glad you could join us. And a very happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there. Please turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. In a segment from a sermon titled, The Enemy of Leading, Pastor Elliot preaches a warning against male passivity. And now, Pastor Robert Elliot. Dads, your kids and my kids don't need us to back off in indifference in this culture. Our kids don't need us to say, whatever you think, Junior, check with your mother. I'll deal with it when I'm not so busy. We'll talk about it later. Doesn't matter to me. What are the other kids doing? Work it out by yourself. Believe what you want to believe, just so long as you believe something. Gentlemen, that is passivity, and that is not leading. And most often, frankly, that is rooted in selfishness and not in service, love, and sacrifice. Jesus led by service, love, and sacrifice. And dads, your kids desperately need you to lead them with example, to lead them with love, with patience, with wisdom, and yes, to lead them with God-given authority. You don't have to wake up any day and say, do I have God's authority and okay to lead my wife and my children? The scriptures yell out, yes, you do. Because do you know what, guys? If we don't choose to lovingly, in a servant's heart, lead our wives and children, do you know what will happen to our children if we refuse to lead them? Hollywood will lead them. Their peers will lead them. Video games will lead them. MTV will lead them. Their mobile device apps will lead them if we won't. Rebellion will lead them. Their flesh will lead them. Their sin natures will lead them. I want to close this sermon with a lengthy conclusion that has one final train of thought, and it's this. Male passivity is a problem which is as old as the Garden of Eden. Go with me, please, to Genesis 3. I want to read the first six verses. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows in the day that you eat from it your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Here we see Satan came to Eve as a crafty serpent, and he came with one express purpose, to tempt her to sin. And Satan persisted and eventually persuaded Eve to eat of the only fruit which God prohibited in all of the vast and perfect garden called Eden. And shortly after Eve ate, we don't know exactly the time here, Adam ate too. 
Eve offered the fruit to her husband and he ate it. They both sinned. Scripture does not spell out for us whether or not Adam was present at the very moment that Eve decided to take the first bite. He may have been there and he was silent. Or he may not have been there. He was absent. But one thing we can be sure of What we do know beyond the shadow of a doubt is that when Eve offered Adam the second bite, he took it. She led him. She initiated. And he responded. This was the very first instance of male passivity in Scripture. This was not leadership. And guys, absence and or silence is still not leadership. When we are absent in our families and marriages and silent in our families and our marriages, we are not leading. This is both true with respect to fathering and with respect to being a husband. And what did the first human father's passivity set up for all subsequent humans, including each of us? It set up sin, disobedience to God, independence from God, physical, spiritual, and everlasting death. Domestic violence. Scripture tells us that their son Cain murdered their son Abel. Right out of the gate, a passive dad saw a son run seriously amok and another son buried. Now I know what I think some of you are thinking, possibly. Pastor Rob, you are very strongly saying that God's will is for husbands to lead wives, for fathers to lead children. How do we know if Eve was to lead Adam? How do we know if my wife's to lead in our family? She's better at it. How do we not know that my wife's to parent our children because she's good? Well, I'm glad you're thinking about that. Let's let Scripture answer that objection. Adam and Eve were given to each other for oneness. For this cause, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Oneness is God's will for all of us who are married. Oneness. That means that Satan's will for every one of us who are married is aloneness. Aloneness. And it's not just a divorce that gives you aloneness. There are married people who are alone in their marriages, and they live under the same roof. So togetherness... Oneness is what God willed for Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve's togetherness is seen in that after they even sinned, they sewed fig leaves together. And they tried to hide from God together. That's funny, trying to hide from God. But Jonah tried it too, right? Maybe we have. And they heard their respective punishments for sinning from God. They were together. But will you notice something very, very key from verse 9? Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? God called Adam to account after they sinned. God didn't call Eve to account first. God called Adam to account. This tells us and shows us that God's design is for the man to lead the woman, for the husband to lead the wife and children, for the father to lead the children. God called Adam to account, not Eve. In God's plan, Adam was to lead his wife and to lead his children. And how did Adam handle that responsibility? Lousy. He didn't do well. 
He went passive again. He blamed his wife for their sin. He said in Genesis 3.12, Lord, the woman you gave me. He wouldn't man up to say, yeah, I ate. I was either absent or silent when she ate first. It's on me. No, Lord, the woman you gave me. Were it not for here, we wouldn't be in trouble. That's not leadership. Did God buy Adam's excuse that it was just the woman that God had given him? Not at all. Look at verse 17. Then to Adam, God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. God didn't buy the excuse because God had as his will that Adam would lead, and after Adam and Eve fell, God still had as his will in a sin-cursed and fallen world that the man would lead, the children and the wife. And Adam's passivity started a riverbed of male passivity that was small at first. But now, these thousands of years later, men, we stand up to our waist in the raging whitewater of male passivity as a river. And most of us are content to stand there in this swelling, rushing river that, by the way, the world thinks is great. This world loves impotent men, leaderless men. Satan loves that. Now you say, Pastor, how do I know if I'm in this whitewater river of passivity? Well, let me get personal. When I urged you to take sermon notes, when you knew you weren't going to buy the CD, did you start or did you ask your wife to do it? When was the last time you led your wife to scripture reading and prayer? When was the last time you led your children still at home and your wife to scripture and reading and prayer? And who does more correcting of the children, you or your wife? And if you have ever asked for marriage counseling from anybody, who asked for it, you or your wife? And if you've ever asked for benevolence fund help, and that fund is available to help people in Jesus' name, if you've ever asked for that help, who asked for it, you or your wife? And on a typical Sunday, who makes the decision about whether you or not you stay for a Sunday school class? And if you and your wife are both saved in a part of this church and only one of you is involved in a ministry, is it your wife or is it you? Yes, I think the majority of us are standing in the whitewater river of male passivity up to our armpits. And this current male passivity of the majority of men is both inside the church but outside the church. Men, we tend to pick passivity over leadership because it's easier. Long ago, most of us, I'm afraid, have quit on being proactive, quit on being involved, and quit on being directive. I think most of us have quit. We've retreated. We've gone silent. And our kids and our wives are damaged and frustrated by our passivity. How do I know that? Because they come and they tell me. The resentment that they have to step in and lead the family when they don't want to, but nobody else will. They tell me. The first father, Adam's historic passivity and unwillingness to lead his wife even, the kids had very, very, very serious fallout. Abel got a grave and the whole world got a flood. And today, men, our passivity and our unwillingness to lead our wives and our kids still has very serious fallout. 
Did you know that 40 out of the 54 of the world's greatest philosophers believed in God? But of the 14 who didn't believe in God, eight were preachers' sons. And of those 14 who didn't believe in God, all 14 hated their fathers. Do you know the two things which Hitler, Stalin, Marx, and Lenin have in common? Number one, they all failed in school. And number two, they all chose to get replacement dads because their own dads were absent or poor leaders for them. Do you realize that in the world's prisons worldwide this morning, that 95% of the male inmates hate their fathers? In 1984, that's a while ago, A 1984 study found that, on average, a Christian American father spent two minutes per day talking with his children. The same study showed that those same average American dads spent two minutes per day reading their Bibles. And do you know what I think? In the 30 ensuing years from 1984, two minutes is too much. I think it's less than two minutes that American Christian dads talk to their sons or daughters a day, and maybe less than a minute than American dads read God's Word. Thanks, Pastor Rob, for your message today. And now it's time for Youth Talk with Pastor Nicholas Rogers. Good morning. This is Pastor Nicholas. And the last time we talked on Youth Talk, we talked about having the Bible as our foundation of what we believe. And again, as we think of the times that we are living in, There are many people who are going to throw things at us. And I want us to look again as we think of the the word being our foundation. What is it we're going to do? Because there are going to be struggles. There are going to be difficulties that come in our life. And it will be so easy for each one of us to, as, as we think of our faith, that we're not built on that rock that we talked about last week. As we think of the, the wise man has built his house upon the rock. The foolish man built his house on sand and collapsed when storms came in. If you look at our newspapers, if you look at um, just as you look on the internet, whatever it is, you will see that we are living in trouble sometimes. We are living in times when our faith is being questioned every single day by differing groups. And as we think uh, of that, we have to understand this isn't just something that came and came up on, on us now. This has been happening from in, in the Bible times. And we think of 2 Timothy t- Chapter 3, verse 1, it says this, But know this, hard times will come in the last days. I want you to think about that for a second. Because here it is, this is the word of God that we, sometimes people say, well, this was written a long time ago. This is not current. This does not work. Don't worry about it. But here it is. The word of God is telling us the truth. But know this, hard times will come in the last days. And I want you to listen to this because I think that we need to understand. I said this, for people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, demeaning, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to the form of godliness but denying its power. Avoid these people. Again, this is a picture, again, as you think of going into the work field, going to college, going to, you know, in a time of summer break for some students who may be listening, hard times are going to come. 
These are people that we come in contact every day of our lives. People who love themselves, people who love money, people who are proud, people who have no regard of God whatsoever. What are we going to do? Well, again, as we talked about last week, we talked about having a strong foundation. We need to recognize that we would stay away from these people. We would try to, you know, keep clear of them. Yes, we will try to win them for Christ and share our faith and tell them about Jesus Christ. But there's only so much that we can do in our own faith. And we need to recognize in, in saying that, that we have to be careful because the Bible also says that bad company corrupts good character. And we can try our hardest to, to win someone for Christ and to share God's word with them. And we may never see any change in their life. But we need to understand that this is the time that we need to do what we can do. And if we have to understand that God has to do the work. So how do we, you know, as we think of these people, how do, what do we do in life? Well, first of all, we need to point them to the word of God. And again, as, as some people will say, why are you talking about the Bible? It's such an old book. It's not current today. Well, I want you to think about this for a second. Again, as a graduate, you have just finished school. You have finished biology, chemistry, math, and all these different subjects. You had to study very hard to pass these exams. You had to study hard to know what the textbook says. The reality of those textbooks is this. When I was in school, it was a different textbook. Your biology book has changed from when I was in school to now. But there's one thing that has never changed as we think of the Word of God. As we think of the Word of God, yes, we have different translations, we have different versions, but the reality is the Scripture is the same. And this is the key to what we want to think about as we think of this morning, as we think of 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17, it says this, All Scripture, not some, not just the New Testament, not just the Old Testament, but all Scripture is inspired by God. And it's profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Again, this is a very key for us as we sit and think of what it is that we're going to do with our lives. You may be a young person thinking, well, now that I'm graduated, what am I going to do? But we need to understand, as the text is saying here, that we need to go to the Word of God and ask God, what should we do with our lives? Because God is saying that all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. As we think of that, this is a reason why some people don't even like to think about the word of God. Because we don't like to be corrected in what we are saying, what we believe. But the reality is that this is the foundation. This is what we need to know because God's word, as it says here, this is the training us for righteousness. If you sit and think of a person as they want to build muscle or, or whatever it is they want to do, they want to train. They want to either go to the gym or they want to go and um, go running and lift weights, whatever it is. But it's a training aspect. And this is us in our Christian faith. As we think of foundation, there needs to be training. They need, there needs to be constant training. As I think of God's word, you know, we may say to ourselves, I know it all. But the reality is there's none of us that know it all. This is why people continue to study God's Word because we all need to be trained in righteousness. Because Satan is out there ready to use people to attack our faith. And this is why we need to continue to, to train ourselves. This is why we need the strong foundation. And verse 17 says this, So that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. Again, this is our manual to life. This is what God is saying, Look, you can have all the knowledge of chemistry and physics and all that 
But without the word of God as the foundation, then your, your life is going to collapse because this is what you need. You need the word of God to be number one in your life. This is the book that needs to be number one because this brings everything into perspective. When you go to college and, and the teacher starts to talk about things that you've never heard about, what are you going to do? Are you going to just accept it and be like, oh, well, they taught it in school, so that's right. Or are you going to line up with the word of God, what you've been taught, what you know? Because that's the reality. The reality is your faith is going to be tested wherever you go, whether it be in the work field, whether it be at school, whatever it is, you are going to be tested. And then there are some people who, who will say, well, you know, I'm a Christian. You know, I, I've been to church all my life. I've done all the right things. I'm a good person. I've never had sex before marriage. You know, I don't drink. I don't smoke. And that's my faith. But guess what? That's a faith ready to crumble because there's no foundation. There's nothing to back that up. And the reality is the only way that you can say for sure whether you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, if you have said in your heart, in your life, that you have surrendered and you say, you know what? I believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again for my sin. Not as words because... Even the demons believe that, but that you live it in your everyday life. If you do that in your life, wherever you go, you're going to have trials. You're going to have tribulation. You're going to have people come against you. But remember this. There's only one person that really matters in his life at the end of the day, and that is what God thinks about you. So with that foundation of the word of God, you will be pleasing God and you will know how to defend your faith. I want you to just think about that for a second because... When you sit and think of people coming against you, it will be easy to crumble. But with a strong foundation, it will be easy to stand firm in what you believe. And now, today's ministry spotlight. Well, this morning I'm pleased again to have my friend and sister in Christ, Dr. Marlene Heiler, co-founder of the New Providence Classical School and a professional Christian counselor with us. Good morning. Good morning. This morning, I was hoping we could speak together about safe places. And uh, what would you say is a good definition of a safe place? A safe place is a place where you can be your real self. You can be at your worst and still be accepted, not rejected, not ridiculed, and fully loved. That's a nice place. Uh, <laughs> for all, all of us, because we all can be at our worst and, and needs, that's for sure. Thank you for that. Why would you say that safe places are needed? Because people are hurting. People need love. People need to know that they're forgiven. And sometimes you don't find that in the general population. Yes. So it's good to have some place you can go to to feel loved, to feel forgiven, to feel accepted. Absolutely. What happens if a person never finds a safe place? Well, I can give you my opinion. Yes, indeed. <laughs> to me, you never really get to know what real love is. Mm, that's serious. You never get to be your real self. You know how if you see a rose open up mm -hmm. and blossom and you see it at its fullness, mm -hmm. when a person doesn't know unconditional love, you never get to be that person. That is very helpful uh, visual uh, metaphor for sure. I would suppose if a person never finds a safe place, they would become an actor or an actress. You could. People tell me they wear a mask. 
People tell me that, especially women tell me that all the time. Mm -hmm. They wear masks. And if you speak at women's retreats, it's interesting. I don't know if the other speakers have experienced this, but near the end of the retreat, you can feel the women lingering as if they don't want to go home, as if this weekend it was such, we were on a mountaintop, it was such a special, safe place. And you could sense sometimes that women do not want to go home. And um, as the speaker, there have been times when I had to help them detach from what we had for the weekend and prepare them to turn their hearts and their heads towards home. And perhaps to find uh, ways or strategies to be authentic in those other places. That's a good point. From which they have come to the retreat. Exactly. Mm. What are the joys <laughs> of being someone's safe place? In other words, that question assumes that Sometimes a safe place is not a locality it's a person. or an address, but it's a person. So yes. let me state the question again. What are the joys of being someone else's safe place? You, you, well, you just said it. Joy. You experience deep, deep joy that money can buy, that you can't pay for. You get to know yourself better. You learn things about yourself. You feel very empowered. For instance, one of the traits of a safe place or a safe person is confidentiality. Yes. So this person can tell you their worst secret, and you're not going to, and that's also a definition. You're not going to hear that somewhere else. Yes. And that is empowering and also humbling yes. to know that, okay, we're going to leave this at the foot of the cross. And for someone to bear their soul, to trust you with that, that is, that's incredibly empowering. It's an incredible gift to be, to receive, isn't it? It is. Someone's and I, trust. And, and I don't take that lightly. No, no. I know you don't. Mm -hmm. I know you don't. Neither do I. What would you say to the person who's listening and, and they haven't found that safe place or person? Pray. Because I remember, I remember when I moved as a, as a young, young woman moving from the Bahamas and going to college. Yes. And um, I remember praying for friends. I lit, prayed and asked the Lord to lead me to have the right type of friends. Mm -hmm. And the Lord provided. So I would pray and ask the Lord, okay, Lord, you told us to love one another. This is something that I see in Scripture. You see it among the apostles. And so I know this is real. And I know you want this to be real. Yes. Please show me how or show me where. Yes. And you have to take the risk also of opening up or being discerning enough to know where that person or place is. Yes. And I would think that once we've prayed for such a safe place or person, that we need to be alert to have the circumstances God is orchestrating for the answering of that prayer. Exactly. Mm. So that means you can't be as busy. Hmm. You have to be quiet enough on the inside and attentive enough to how the Lord is leading and what the Lord is saying so you can hear when he points it out to you. So this is so good. This, so this is what we're describing of waiting on God, uh, clearing the deck, praying for the safe person or the safe place is the exact opposite of ricochet rabbiting around and trying to solve this problem oneself. Oh, definitely. And it's humbling for you, too, because you realize this is beyond me. 
Mm. It's either burden or the season of life that I'm going through is bigger than me. I need help. I need someone. So, so you have to acknowledge too that you need the body of Christ. Excellent. Well, I'm so glad we had these few minutes to talk about safe places and people. You've been listening to Echoes of Calvary, a radio ministry of Calvary Bible Church, Nassau, Bahamas. Our morning worship service begins this morning at 11 a.m. in the sanctuary located on Collins Avenue. We encourage you to join us. Feel free to write us at eocradio at gmail.com or P.O. Box N1684, Nassau, Bahamas. And remember, everyone needs a savior.